Welcome to the TriStar Church Podcast. We're so glad that you have tuned in today. My name is Matt Grimes, lead pastor of TriStar Church, and I want to encourage you to like and follow us on social media, as well as subscribe to our podcast. You'll find weekly sermons, midweek deep dives, and more right here every single week. I pray that you're challenged and encouraged as you listen, not just to the words that are spoken, but to the Holy Spirit who is speaking to you through this resource. Now let's dive in. Mr. Ray uh, loves to quote Proverbs 25.2 to me, uh, and he says, it is the, or Proverbs says this, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter and to search out such matter as the glory of kings. And so let us be kings and queens this morning and search out what the Lord has hidden for us in the pages that we will be. So we'll be um, kind of going back uh, to the beginning of the story of Joseph and his 12 brothers this morning. And I think one of the beautiful things about this story is that it is so interconnected uh, to the first uh, few chapters of Genesis. And one thing that uh, as I've studied and as I've learned is that where we're at in this book can almost all correlate itself back to Genesis 1. The first day of creation or the first few days of creation is actually hidden throughout all of Scripture. And we see God make these beautiful analogies and these beautiful metaphors through his people to give us a glimpse of what he is doing and who he is. And so a few weeks ago, I introduced you uh, two words, the words motif and the words movement. And I'd love to kind of continue on that thought. Um, A motif, uh, if you were not here a few weeks ago, is basically a collection of notes that kind of uh, gives you a signal or gives you a clue of something that is coming up. So if you are familiar with the movie Jaws, that's a motif. And, you know, if you start hearing those two bass notes in uh, concession with each other, that something bad is about to happen. Um, And so uh, in literature, motifs are basically the same thing where there will be little signs that kind of point us to what is actually happening. The other word is movement. So in symphonies, we're very familiar with Spotify and MP3s and songs that are, you know, anywhere from three to five minutes long. But back in the orchestral days, uh, these uh, full uh, performances would consist of movements, not songs. And these movements would tell a story. And so through the music, you would have an hour-long show of music telling a story, and these movements would correlate with different pieces or emotions of what was trying to be told. And in Genesis, it's not much different from an old piece of music that has movements. Genesis actually has a few different movements, and we find ourselves in the final movement of Genesis with the story of Joseph and his his 11 brothers and Jacob. And so what this final movement will do for us and show us is we'll hear a lot of motifs or we'll see a lot of common threads from the previous few movements of Genesis, from the lives of Noah, the lives of Abraham and Isaac. We'll see a lot of correlation to the creation story in Adam and Eve. And all of it will come together in this beautiful finale of this book. So let's go back and uh, start to catch a couple of scenes from the story of Joseph and his brothers and start to pick out those clues. So Genesis 37, 
5 through 8, this is after uh, Joseph has been given this multicolored coat. He is the favorite son of his father, Jacob. And it says this, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. So that tells us that the brothers already didn't like him. But now this dream makes them hate him even more. He said, hear this, the dream that I have dreamed, behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to mine. And his brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. As we've been following along in the story, this is the first little clue of what was to come. Because where we're at now, as Matt gave a great sermon a few weeks ago on where Joseph has come so far, he is now over all of the food in Egypt. There is no one greater in Egypt other than Pharaoh. And so now we see that Joseph, this little clue here, has actually foreshadowed where Joseph would be. Genesis 37, 9 says, Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his uh, brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. 11 stars representing his brothers and the sun and the moon representing his father and his mother. And so we see this foreshadowing here where God has given a vision to Joseph that doesn't quite make sense yet, but it's a clue that Joseph would be raised above his whole family. And then we come to a place with one of his brothers named Judah. So where we're at in the story, Joseph's told them this dream. He's foreshadowed what's to come, and his brothers hate him. So Joseph then goes to seek out his brothers like his father had asked, and his brother said, we're going to kill this guy. We don't like him. They hated him. They, they were jealous of him. And so they said, let's, let's, let's just kill him and say that a wild animal took him. And we meet one of his brothers, Judah, who said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. This may sound like a, a, a beautiful brotherly love, but instead, Judah's saying, Hey, we can make some money off this guy. We don't have to deal with murder, and we can get some money in our pockets when we head back home. What a brother. Judah is sitting here saying, listen, I, I have a great plan. So instead of us just killing the guy, let's fill our sacks with gold, and then we don't even have to have blood on our hands. And so from this point in the story, Joseph is then sold off into slavery. Judah and his brothers go home with a pocket full of gold. They have to watch their father mourn the death of his beloved son. Even though we know he's still alive, Jacob thinks that he's lost his favorite son in this whole world. And so Joseph goes from uh, what scholars will say, from exile to power to exile to power. In the, the original Hebrew, it keeps saying that Joseph is going down to Egypt, that he, he is going down into prison, that he is going down and that is a very uh, purposeful uh, language there, that he is going down into exile. That he is going further and further down so that the Lord can lift him up. And so Joseph, sold into slavery, becomes the master of his, uh, 
or he becomes the highest position in his master's house, then a lie is said against him. He goes back into imprisonment, into exile away from what he, know, he has known, only to be lifted up by Pharaoh, to be made second in command of all of Egypt. And while all of this is happening and is kind of the focal point of the scriptures, Judah, his brother, goes on a journey of destruction and death, losing loved ones, losing kids. And so what we see here is that Joseph suffers from the sins of others and Judah suffers from the sins of himself. Judah literally lives a life that is full of the consequences of his own sin. And where we found ourselves in the last couple of weeks is this big four-chapter-long uh, story of Joseph testing his brothers and his family. He's over all of Egypt. He's interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. There's seven years of complete abundance, more grain than they could ever imagine in their life. But remember that God sent a vision to Pharaoh that Joseph was able to interpret that there would be seven years of famine and those seven years of famine would swallow up all of the abundance that they had had in their lives. And so Joseph says, hey, Pharaoh, this is what your dream means. I would suggest you find a smart guy to be in control of all this abundance so it doesn't get swallowed up by all the famine. And so Pharaoh and the Egyptians kind of huddle around and start thinking and they're like, well, Obviously, this guy is from God. He's from, they say he is from Elohim, the God of the Hebrews. Maybe we should make this guy in charge of all of our grain. And so Pharaoh gives Joseph these clean white linen robes. He gives him a ring of his own signet. He gives him like all of the gold ornate jewelry that he can find. And it says that he gives him a second chariot. And so as Joseph is riding this chariot throughout Egypt, people are like, hey, that kind of looks like Pharaoh, but it's not. Literally, he was given a place of royalty to rule and reign over Egypt with no one being greater than him than Pharaoh. And that sounds kind of familiar. There's a little motif there where God breathes into Adam and Eve, his life, and gives them rule and reign over all of creation. That there would be no animal greater than humanity other than God. And what does God say about humanity is he says that he is, we are made in his image. And so, we are made in the image of God that we have rule and reign over all of humanity. There's no one greater on earth than us other than God. And we look like him, almost undistinguishable. But then man ruins that. And then we see this common thread all the way to Joseph, who looks exactly like Pharaoh, who is given reign over all of the land that they cannot dis distinguish between Pharaoh and Joseph. And so this is man's second chance that God has given Joseph to signify that we as humans were meant to reign and rule over the land that we were given. 
So meanwhile, while Joseph is wearing the finest clothes and doing his business, making sure that Egypt does not starve in these seven years of famine, we see Joseph's family, Jacob and his sons, over in Canaan, starving to death. They're losing all of their food. And so Jacob goes to his sons and he says, hey, we're going to starve to death if we don't get food. Go to Egypt and get some food for us. But there's one caveat, and we see this in Genesis 42, 4 through 5. It says, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brothers, with his brother, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So what happened? They're starving. Jacob says, we need some food. I'm going to send my sons to go buy food for us so that the family can survive. But Jacob, who still has yet to learn his lesson about favoritism, says, even though Joseph died, his brother from the same mother is still alive, and he's now my favorite. So I'm going to hold Benjamin back and send the 10 brothers there. I mean, Jacob literally cannot learn his lesson for the life of him to not show favorites. But he sends the, the, his 10 sons to go buy grain so that they could have some food. And what it says in Genesis 42, 8 through 9, is it says this, that Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Remember him. He looks like an Egyptian now. He's no longer a Hebrew in the land of Canaan. He's shaved his hair. He, he's gone through the whole sequence in the movie where he gets a makeover and, you know, he, he went from uh, drab to fab and he looks great now. And so it says that uh, the brothers didn't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognized him. And what happens here is that the brothers come in to the room and they bow before Joseph before they ask if they can buy some grain. And it says that Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed. Joseph is really hard on his brothers. He asks them a lot of really tough questions. He's not polite to them at all. This is not out of revenge. This isn't out of uh, the abuse of power, but instead this is to ensure that Joseph, as he tests his brothers, will not give away that he is Joseph, son of Jacob. So much like any Egyptian would do in this time, they would give the Hebrews a very difficult time as they were trying to purchase grain. And so this is what Joseph says to his brothers. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined when you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. So Joseph has asked and said, hey, do you have a younger brother? Do you have a father? He's trying to see what the, the state of his family is like now. So he finds out that his younger brother Benjamin is still alive. He finds out that his father is still alive. And so Joseph wants to test his brothers. And they say, to be honest, 
we can't leave a brother here. We can't go get our younger brother. And they start confessing their sins. Hey, buddy. Sorry, that was my son. Um, So they start confessing the sin that they had sold their brother Joseph into slavery. They started feeling the weight of what they had done in their lives, and they understand that this is now the consequence of their actions. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and replace every man's money in his sack and give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. So they agreed to this. They leave their brother Simeon behind as a prisoner to the Egyptians. They get food for the rest of their family. And what Joseph does here is he puts money back in their sacks. As much as I would love to say that Joseph was just a really kind person here, this was to test them. What did Joseph have to go through? He was sold into slavery by his brothers. So they sold a brother for money. And here Joseph is testing his brothers that they now leave another brother behind in captivity. And they get to go home with food and gold in their pocket. So Joseph is waiting to see if these brothers will come back to him to to get Simeon back, if they will bring Benjamin. And they come back and they realize that there's money in their pockets. They realize all of this stuff and they start freaking out. They're like, why, why is God distressing us to this extent? We promised that we were trying to be good. We promised that we were just trying to follow orders. And they said, we've got to go back. We've got to return this money. It, it must have been an error. We've got to do this. We've got to do that. And they said, oh yeah, Jacob, we have, or father, we have to take Benjamin with us. We have to go get our other brother. We have to take Benjamin with us. We have to restore the whole family back to where it was. And of course, Jacob's like, uh-uh, not happening. I lost one son. I mourned his death. I've lost my favorite son already. And now I have another favorite son and you're trying to take this one from me. But Genesis 43, eight through 10 says this, Judah said to his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety from my hand. You shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Judah, who has been the bad guy in the movie for the whole Runtime is now saying, you know what? I'm having a change of heart. I'm no longer looking out for myself. I want to look out for the greater family. We could have returned twice by now because you've made us wait because you can't make this decision to send Benjamin with us. And so he says, let me put my life on the line. Judah has yet to do this in his life. Judah put... Joseph's life on the line, he put his wife's life on the line, his kid's life on the line, and has never taken responsibility for his life. And here he is in his grand redemption arc saying, let me take this one. And it says in Genesis 43, 15, they took this, the men took this present 
And they took double the money with them in Benjamin, and they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. And as Joseph sees his brothers come in, and he sees Benjamin, he's overwhelmed with emotion. They had completed this test. They had actually done what was righteous by returning with everything, by bringing Benjamin. And it says that Joseph was so overcome with emotion that he had to leave the room, wash his face, and come back. And so he, grows, he throws this grand feast and basically says, everyone in the room can have a grand feast on me. It, it'll be on my dime. But he's not yet done testing his brothers. As they sit down to eat, says that portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. This is literally Joseph taking the food off of his own plate and handing it over to his brothers. They said, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. So Joseph is still testing his brothers. He knows that Benjamin is now the favorite of his father. He knows that Benjamin now bears the weight of what Joseph once bared himself. And so he sends five times the portion of anyone else's plate to Benjamin to see if he could ignite the fire of jealousy in his brothers and see if his brothers truly had a change of heart. The scripture continues, Genesis 44, 1 through 13. He's sending them back to their house with food. And he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sack with food and as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. And as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys and they had gone only a short distance from the city and Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not that this, is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. And when he overtook them, he spoke these words and he said to them, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Or the brother said this to the Egyptians, far be it from your servants to do such such a thing. Behold, the money that we found on the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. So the brothers say to these officials that Joseph has sent said, listen, we, we haven't done anything wrong. We haven't stolen anything. There's nothing in our sacks other than the food that you've given us. Whoever's sack has what you said has been stolen, you can take their life. Not a great move. He said, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground and each man opened his sack. And he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. 
continuing in verse 30 through 34. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, this is Judah speaking, the boy is not with us then as his life is bound up in the boy's life. As soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, you will die and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So Joseph makes this grand plan the final test of this movement or of this story. He said, hide my silver cup in Benjamin's sack to see what happens from it all. And it's so beautiful that if you remember in the verse, it says that uh, the Egyptians say our master or uh, Joseph in this case uses this cup for divination. And in the original Hebrew, The word divination in this context is spelled almost exactly like the word serpent in the fall of man in early Genesis. And so God, taking the serpent's deception, which the serpent meant for evil, is allowing Joseph to use deception here to find the truth and to find the goodness of his brothers. And as their brothers find out that Benjamin is going to be enslaved forever, they tear their cloths and they feel the weight of guilt upon them as they head back to Egypt. And Judah in this moment goes one-on-one with Joseph and says, please don't make me bear the weight of seeing my father die from not being able to bring Benjamin home with me. Don't take the life of Benjamin, instead take my own life. It says that Joseph, in Genesis 45, 1 through 3, it says, Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me, so no one stayed with them. When Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. When Joseph has seen the change of heart in his brother Judah, the change of heart in his brothers, he is so overcome with emotion that Simeon no longer has to bear the weight of his other brothers wanting to profit off of his life that Benjamin no longer has to bear the weight of his brothers being so selfish that they would just let Benjamin go and be a slave as they go home with grain and money in their pockets. Joseph starts to cry and weep, and he finally makes himself known to his brothers. And it says here in Genesis 45, 4 through 5, Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God 
sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph says, I've got it all figured out. There's no guilt to be had here. You no longer bear the weight of your past sins because the Lord has used the evil that you have once incurred to bring goodness and to preserve life. The original language says to preserve a remnant, which we see back in the story of Noah, as God tells Noah that he is choosing him to preserve the remnant of faithfulness and righteousness. And so just as God has used Noah to preserve life through this grand flood, God has used Joseph to preserve the life of the lineage of Abraham. Genesis 45, six through eight says, for the famine has been in the land for these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me, this is Joseph. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Continuing on in verses nine through 11, hurry up and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall not, or you shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. Joseph has finally put all of the pieces together. The dream that he had of his brothers bowing down to him and the dream that he had of the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down to him was not a means of him rising to power to lord over his family, but instead to protect his family, to keep a remnant of life in his family. He realizes that everything that he has walked through in this life, all of the exile all of the suffering has come to a place of goodness. Not only is he a master in Egypt, but he also is now able to bring his family, the Hebrews, out of Canaan where there is famine into Egypt where there is plentiful and give them the land of Goshen. Again, another nerdy thing is that Goshen in the original Hebrew shares a lot of letters with the word garden the Garden of Eden. So God is literally in this moment saying that in your sin, in your iniquity, in the moments that you have chosen selfishness and chosen your own definition of good and evil over mine, I'm still bringing an Eden-like experience to my people because that's how good I am. It's nothing that you have done on your own. It is out of my goodness, out of my love for you guys, that even in a land of exile like Egypt, I will bring Eden to you. And I know that we went over a lot this morning, but there are three truths that I would love for us to just meditate on this week. Truth number one, you are never too far away from God. 
You are never too far away from God. Judah has spent his whole life in rebellion against God, in rebellion against his father, in rebellion against good. And yet it is Judah who is used by God to continue to continue to write the story and to accomplish his will. And Judah is not done at the end of the story. It is the tribe of Judah in which the lineage of Jesus comes from. Judah could not stray too far away from the will of God to be rendered useless. So I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you feel like you have done. I don't know what uh, sin you have committed in your life. All of us have. But understand that you are never too far away to be used by God for greater purpose, for kingdom purpose. Truth number two, God is always at work in our lives. Joseph this, even though this, this story spans probably four or five pages in our Bibles, is a story of decades-long suffering, exile, evil. And in the midst of every second of those decades, God was at work in the life of Joseph, at, in the life of Judah, in the life of Jacob. There's not a moment that God cannot be working in our story to fulfill his will. Finally, truth number three, it is our responsibility to shift our perspective. If God is always at work in our lives, is it his responsibility to show us what he's doing or is it our responsibility to shift our perspective and start to glean on what God may be at work in the hours, minutes, and seconds. It is not God's responsibility to come down from the heavens in English, you know, a language that we can understand and tell us, Tanner, this is exactly what I'm doing in your life, but instead it is my responsibility to pray and fast and shift my perspective and say, what can the Lord be bringing from this? This is not something that is fun for Christians. It's not something that's fun for us. But it's something that is absolutely necessary so that we can come to the same place that Joseph came to. Joseph could have been bitter. He could have allowed the years and years and years of frustration and enslavement to turn his heart cold and hard against his brothers. He could have seen them immediately walk in for grain and just turn them away. He would have been completely justified to do so. But instead, he realized that God was at work in his life and that God was doing something and that he had shifted his perspective out of how can I get back at my brothers and to now what is God doing in realizing that God has brought him through all of this to save a remnant for his family. So uh, as the band comes up, we're going to sing one more song, and I would love to invite you as our moments close this morning to realize that each of these characters in the story bring beauty.
Each of these characters in the story are used by God. And each of these characters in the story resemble pieces of our own selves and can reveal something greater about ourselves. We're about to sing a song called New Wine that's all about how back in the historical days of Jesus, you couldn't put new wine in an old wineskin because it would burst. It would not be ready or prepared for this new wine. And in the same language, the Lord invites us to as we accept salvation, as we call on the name of Jesus as our Lord and Savior and confess our sins to make ourselves resurrected spiritually out of the old dead self into the new self that is alive. But a lot of us in this room, including myself, like to have a couple of uh, garments of death clothes still on. There's still parts of my mind, there's still parts of my personality, there's still parts of my sinful desires that want to keep these death clothes on and not hand them over to Jesus. There's parts of me that probably feel like Judah, that I've gone too far and I can't do enough to overcome the bad in my life, or I can't I may feel like Joseph, that I can't overcome the sin that I've suffered that other people may have committed. But God calls us to instead to shift our perspective on his goodness, to shift our perspective to his will and what he's doing in our lives. So will you guys pray with me this morning before we worship? Heavenly Father, we come to give you honor and glory. I pray that as your word was spoken, you spoke through it, that instead of it being my words that they would be your words and I pray for every heart in this room of my brothers and sisters I pray for every heart of my family here that it would be open and willing to hear as you speak so God we come to give you glory and honor in Jesus name I pray amen thanks for listening to this podcast If you live in the greater Knoxville area, we would love for you to join us for a worship gathering. We meet every Sunday at 1030 a.m. For directions and more information, please visit www.tristarnox.org. Lastly, resources like this one are made possible by the financial support and generosity of people just like you. If you would like more information on supporting TriStar Church, please visit our website, or you can text the word GIVE to 865-240-0353 and follow the prompts. Your generosity and support will empower us to continue to partner with believers, equipping them to make disciples by living out the gospel in the places they live, work, and play. Grace and peace.